This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by the new book Spaceman by Mike Massimino. Publishers Weekly writes, Readers will be delighted and moved by retired astronaut Massimino's almost childlike wonder and enthusiasm coupled with his humility. This is an engaging and uplifting memoir that's sure to give readers a deeper appreciation for the U.S. space program and inspire some future astronauts. Learn more at MikeMassimino.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 225 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is book critic Ruth Franklin. She's a frequent contributor to The New Yorker and Harper's, and is a recipient of a New York Public Library Cullman Fellowship and a Guggenheim Fellowship. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new book, Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life, which explores how Jackson came to write such classic tales as The Lottery, The Haunting of Hill House, and We Have Always Lived in the Castle. And today's show is brought to you by Spaceman, the new memoir by NASA astronaut Mike Massimino. And here's Mike's bio. It says, Mike Massimino served as a NASA astronaut from 1996 to 2014. A veteran of two space flights to the Hubble Space Telescope, Mike and his crew set team records for spacewalking time, and he became the first person to tweet from space. He's played himself on the CBS sitcom The Big Bang Theory, was featured in the IMAX film Hubble 3D, and has appeared on talk shows such as The Late Show with David Letterman and Good Morning America. And here's a bit more about Mike's reaction to seeing the Earth from space for the first time. He writes, According to my suit's biometric sensors, I have a normal resting heart rate of 50 or 60 beats per minute. The moment I saw the Earth, it spiked to 120. The thought that entered my head was, this is something I'm not supposed to see. This is a secret. The planet below was so beautiful that I actually started getting emotional. I had to look away. I was afraid I was going to tear up. And if you get water floating around in your suit, that could be a big problem. There would be a post-flight investigation, and I would have to admit that I was crying in space. I also like this quote about the Hubble. Mike writes, Understanding what's happening at the other end of the galaxy is a path to understanding ourselves, understanding who we are and why we're here. That's why we go. The beauty of Hubble is that it is maybe the purest expression of that idea that exists today. Not only is it an instrument that can see farther and deeper into the history of the universe than any other machine ever built, the knowledge that it provides belongs to everyone. It's done solely for the enrichment of our fellow man, and that's an incredible thing. The book has received a starred review from Kirkus, and Bill Nye the Science Guy writes, Inspired by moonwalkers, Mike grew up, became an astronaut, and fixed the Hubble Space Telescope, all while remaining some kind of humble. You can't help but follow him from Long Island to the bottom of the spacewalk practice pool, then 350 miles up and back. He's a spaceman through and through, and he tells how hard work can take you out of this world. So the book is called Spaceman, an astronaut's unlikely journey to unlock the secrets of the universe, and you can learn more at MikeMassimino.com. And now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Ruth Franklin. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Okay, so how did you first get interested in Shirley Jackson? Well, you know, it's hard to say. Um, I guess in some ways she was always kind of there in the background. You know, I had read The Lottery at some point. I don't even remember exactly when. Um, But The Haunting of Hill House, her famous ghost story novel, has always been one of my favorite books. Um, But it wasn't actually until um, around six years ago uh, when I started reading more widely in her work and got a sense of 
how wide her range is that I became interested in telling the story of her life. Hmm. So was there anything in particular that prompted you to go read more of her work? Well, in uh, 2010, the Library of America came out with a big edition that included a lot of her short stories, um, as well as The Haunting of Hill House and her great last novel, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. And, um, you know, I was reading that book, actually, there's one story in it. It's actually um, more of an essay, because Jackson also wrote these autobiographical memoirs about her life um, as a housewife and mother of four children and wife to her absent-minded professor husband, Stanley Edgar Hyman. Um, so she wrote this essay called The Third Baby's the Easiest. And in it, she tells the story of going to the hospital to deliver her third child. And the clerk asks her to state her profession. And she says, writer. And the clerk says, I'll just put down housewife. So I, when I read the story, I felt like this just encapsulates so much about um, just what it meant to be a woman like Shirley Jackson, to be a writer and a mother at the same time at this moment, you know, this moment in America, the late 1940s, 1950s, when this was a really unusual choice for a woman. And I wanted to learn more about how she was able to make that happen. So did you have an idea to write a biography at that point, or did that come later? You know, I had been thinking about writing a biography for some time, um, just because as a book critic, I'm always really interested in the stories behind how books come into being. Um, and so I'm always kind of looking to tell those stories um, in my book reviews as best as I can. So um, I really was, I was sort of, I guess, a biographer in search of a subject. And then um, everything kind of came together for me and Shirley Jackson. And so kind of what was your first step then when you decided to write this biography? Um, well, my first step was to um, take a look and see how much material was available. I mean, I guess I would say this is all part of the decision-making process in terms of settling on, on the decision to write the biography. Um, so I knew there had been a previous biography um, published towards the end of the 80s. Um, and I read it and felt that you know, in many ways, it's a very good book. And in others, it's it's kind of incomplete in that it doesn't really tell the story of Jackson's evolution as a writer. It focuses much more on her personal life. And her creative life was the aspect of her persona that I was most interested in. And so then I went and had a look at her archives, which are kept at the Library of Congress, just to see, you know, how much material was there, um, how rich it was. And, you know, so I was thrilled to discover not only that there was just tons of material there, more than 50 boxes worth of uh, papers, notebooks, drawings, photographs, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, but also that there was a lot of new archival material that had not been available to the previous biographer, much of it um, shedding light on Jackson's marriage, often a complicated marriage to Stanley Edgar Hyman. Um, and then, of course, in the course of the project, through my contacts with sources and other people, I was able to um, find even more material that hadn't been seen before. But I would say that was really the most important step in the process, was uh, actually to see the material, uh, to see what was there, and um, you know, the realization that there was a, a new way to tell Jackson's story with a lot of new information. So were you able to read 50 boxes worth of material? 
<laughs> uh, you know, in the beginning, I definitely had as a goal the idea that I would leave no piece of paper unturned. <laughs> and yeah, as the years went on, it became clear that that goal might not be entirely realistic. And, you know, you start skipping over things like, um, you know, Dear Miss Jackson, the uh, Montpelier Ladies Society is writing to confirm your engagement <laughs> for Tuesday the 20th at 12 o'clock noon. Um, you know, in the beginning, everything seems like, even stuff like that, everything seems like it could potentially somehow be important to your story. And a lot of times, um, I made notes on things that were totally obscure to me at the time, that later something would jog my memory and I would understand what they were about. Um, and so, you know, that made me really anxious about the idea of skipping over anything <laughs> because, um, cause you just, you know, never, you never know what might, um, what might someday seem, seem important. And in fact, there was a lot of, you know, material that might have seemed trivial that I did go through very carefully. For instance, um, all of Jackson's dialogues are preserved in her archive, these notebooks in which she kept, um, kept track of her, her daily menus during the periods when she was trying to lose weight. And, you know, since she was, was in fact quite overweight at different points of her life, um, this accounts for um, for years worth of material, um, and so she kept track of her meals and the, the calories consumed, and also of the number of cocktails she drank. <laughs> um, and you know, this information seems um, superficial on the one hand, but it, it's it's a, a kind of a roadmap of her preoccupations. So you said, as the years go by, how long did you spend working on this book? From start to finish, it was about six years. Wow! You know, which, which in biography land isn't that crazy. You know, I know people. I know people who have had biographies that took twenty years. Um, so <laughs> that that was my goal. In Stanley Hyman land, it's not too long, too, right? Indeed. <laughs> uh, but you know, the land of the working writer, um, who you know needs to needs to um, <laughs> needs to have a source of income. Uh, things can't be dra allowed to drag on forever. Yeah. Okay, well, so tell us a little bit about her life. You start off the book with this quote where an interviewer asks her, was she encouraged by her family to write? And she responds, they couldn't stop me. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> um, yeah, so Jackson was born into um, a family where she really seems to have been the, the black sheep or, or the misfit. Um, her mother was kind of a classic socialite. And one of my favorite discoveries in the archive, actually, was... Um, a diary, or rather just a notebook, um, that had on its cover the picture of a very demure young woman with curls, you know, I think in some kind of silk dress, maybe with pearls on. And the title of the picture written underneath was The Debutante. And, um, someone, you know, I'm assuming it was Jackson, I can't obviously say for sure, but, um, someone had taken a pencil and scratched out the face <laughs> of this woman. And, um, you know, that seemed to, to me to say so much about, um, what Shirley Jackson as a teenager thought of her mother's aspirations for her to become a debutante, you know, in her mother's socialite mode. It just wasn't something she was ever interested in at all. Um, she had a younger brother who fit into that scene much better. And in fact, I interviewed a friend of his who, um, or I'm sorry, the, the child of a friend of his, actually, who re whose mother had remembered um, Shirley's brother saying, you know, oh, well, we never can imagine what we're going to do with Shirley. What, you know, what are we going to do with Shirley in the end? Um, 
you know, she just, from the very beginning, she always went her own way. And um, her mother was extremely critical of this, um, this tendency when she was a teenager. And it was a criticism that continued throughout her life. In Jackson's archives, she's got folder after folder of letters from her mother. And they're often written in the most belittling, carping tone, um, criticizing her for things like not acknowledging a gift on time, you know, as an adult. <laughs> um, there is one um, amazing one af written after um, one of Shirley Jackson's daughters as a teenager spent a summer in California with her grandparents, um, because that's where Shirley Jackson actually was from. She spent her childhood in Burlingame, California, uh, then as now a very wealthy suburb of San Francisco. Then her family moved east when she was in high school, just towards at the end of her high school years, which I think was quite a shock for her. She hated the Northeast at first. She hated the weather and the cold and all that. Um, and so I think, you know, she would have been probably the most surprised person to know that eventually she would become identified as a New England writer and spend most of her days in Vermont, which I'm sure would have seemed very uncongenial to the teenager who longed for the California sunshine and, you know, the avocados and the pomegranates and all that. She remembered with um, a lot of fondness. Um, but um, as I was saying, she, uh, as much later, she sent her teenage daughter to visit her grandparents in California for the summer. And this just shows how, um, um, you know, mean a person uh, Shirley's mother was after the visit. She sent Shirley an itemized bill of all the money she had spent on her granddaughter. Every little thing she had bought her, you know, from a, a bathing suit to, you know, I don't know what. And Shirley sent her a check. <laughs> wow. I also want to mention that Shirley didn't fit in with her parents because they were Christian scientists and she was not too into that. She actually says that she said at one point that her grandmother had, quote unquote, died of Christian science. Yeah, you know, as an adult, she always was very, very skeptical of the way she had been brought up and would tell her children stories about um, the practices that her grandmother and also her mother, um, you know, I won't say indulged in, but, you know, her, the, the, that they carried out. Her grandmother was actually a, a Christian science um, faith healer who practiced healing, uh, literally hung up a shingle at the Jackson family home when Shirley was growing up. So it's, it's amazing to think that that's what she was exposed to as a child. And she would tell this story about how um, she felt terribly guilty about this, um, that when they were children, she had um, teased her brother and kind of goaded him into running very fast down a hill. He had fallen and broken his arm because of this. And her mother and grandmother, instead of taking him immediately to the hospital, spent the whole night praying over it. And it was a, a source of, of guilt and pain for Shirley that not only that she had caused this accident, but that her brother hadn't been given adequate medical treatment right away. Yeah. Okay. So then she goes off to college and you mentioned that she meets this guy, Stanley Hyman, who she ends up marrying. And there's a really interesting story about how they meet. So tell us about that. Yeah. So Stanley Hyman, um, they met at Syracuse University, um, then is now a popular school uh, for people who wanted to go into journalism. And that's definitely how Stanley Hyman identified himself at a very early age. Um, he decided that he wanted to be a critic when he was still in high school. 
and um, went to Syracuse. And then one day during his sophomore year, he picked up a college literary magazine that had been produced by Shirley's uh, creative writing class. And the story goes that um, he flipped through the magazine and said that just about everything was in it was junk. But uh, he settled on one story that was really interesting. And after he read it, he declared that he was going to marry its author. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, unfortunately, all the principals um, are no longer alive to verify the accuracy of this story. But it is the, um, the legend that has grown up around, around their meeting. And in fact, that was very much the dynamic of their relationship, especially in the early days. Stanley saw himself as the, the great critic um, who was going to kind of work in symbiosis with Shirley's creative genius and explain her work to the world and even to herself because he was convinced that um, she didn't really think about it in an intellectual way. She just kind of spilled it all out and um, left it there for uh, for him to interpret. Right. And so she was really captivated by the possibility of living the life of life of the mind with him. But he was also Jewish, which I guess at that time was kind of an issue. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of an issue. Um, yeah. Um, Jackson's parents, um, in addition to uh, her mother being Christian scientists, they were, um, I guess you're kind of kind of classic upper crust anti-Semites of that era. And they were extremely unhappy about the idea of their daughters dating a Jew. And of course, Stanley's parents weren't any happier about it either. I mean, um, they met in 1938, uh, you know, just before World War II. Reports of, um, you know, Kristallnacht who were just coming out of Europe around the time they met. And, um, um, Shirley's, uh, sorry, Stanley's father, in fact, didn't speak to him for several years after the two of them were married. Um, their their relationship was so controversial that um, Shirley didn't even tell her parents that they were going to get married, and in fact didn't confess to it until a couple years later when uh, she was pregnant with their first child. One of their children told me that, in fact, um, it, was, it took 20 years or so before Shirley's parents found out what their real wedding anniversary was. They, up until then, they were always sending gifts at the wrong time. Well, yeah, no, it's really shocking today to go back and read what college life was like at the time. You say that few fraternities admitted Jews and the black students weren't even allowed to live on campus. It's just... Yeah, and this was at a relatively liberal university like Syracuse. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to imagine how much worse it must have been elsewhere. I mean, remember, this also was an area, uh, an era, sorry, when um, hotels openly advertised that they were restricted, you know, obviously restricted from... Jews and from blacks. Um, and especially racism, especially, was an issue that always energized both Shirley and Stanley. Starting from the time that they were in college, um, they wrote an editorial in the literary magazine that they created, um, a couple editorials actually fulminating against the um, situation for black students on campus. Um, that they, you know, the black students weren't at the time allowed to live in the Syracuse dormitories. Um, and, in, you know, in terms of anti-Semitism, I think it was less obvious than the racism, but still, you know, very much kind of underneath the surfaces of people's politeness. Um, Shirley definitely was exposed to comments from friends of hers of, you know, about how could she possibly 
dated you. And, you know, it was something that she, she felt very keenly about. Um, she really identified with Stanley as an outsider and as the, as the subject of, of prejudice because, you know, growing up the way she did, um, in the town and with the parents she had, she always felt like an outsider herself. And so I think she really identified with this aspect of his character and, um, completely took on uh, that aspect of his identity. I'm not saying in a religious sense, because um, Stanley wasn't a religious Jew at all, although he was brought up traditionally. Um, he would later say that he became an avowed atheist, I think at the age of 14 or something like that. Um, but culturally, he did identify as Jewish, and Shirley, in her private life, took the last name Hyman. The children had the last name Hyman, which, you know, marked them as a Jewish family, uh, which in the town of North Bennington, Vermont, where they ended up, um, was obviously a very unusual thing to be. Right, yeah. So they get married and they move to North Bennington because Stanley has a teaching job there. And there's this incident, too, I wanted to mention where um, they have all these, they, they have this big book collection and the movers are moving the books into the house and they drop one of the books, uh, drop one of the boxes and it splits open and there's all this communist literature inside. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I thought that was a really incredible story. Um, so, uh, just to unpack things a little bit, that happened, um, they moved to North Bennington, uh, Stanley had been offered a teaching job at Bennington College, which at the time was, um, considered, uh, one of the most radical campuses in America, um, a very progressive, independent, um, women's college, uh, that was, um, founded on the idea of providing a new kind of education for women that was going to really allow themselves to develop creatively. Um, and um, it was full of people like Stanley Hyman who um, didn't have advanced degrees, um, but were practitioners of the art that they taught, you know, painters and musicians and Stanley, of course, is a literary critic and many other writers there. Uh, but unfortunately, he was fired um, after his first year or so there and um, he and Shirley decided to move to Westport, Connecticut, um, which didn't wind up not lasting very long. But it was uh, on the move to Westport that there is this incident um, where the carton of books broke open. And so um, one of their former neighbors uh, told me that um, when the when the moving truck came for Shirley and Stanley's stuff, their books took up an entire moving truck. At that point, they probably had around 10,000 books. And it's, it's hard to say how many books were eventually in their collection when they died, but it was probably between 25,000 and 30,000. Just, you know, just an amazing number. And, you know, remember Stanley was a book critic and he got a lot of these for free, but he also was a, a huge collector of, um, rare and, you know, specialty academic books, especially in the field of, uh, of folklore criticism which folklore and mythology, uh, which became his academic specialty. So, um, part of, as part of the research, I, um, filed a FOIA request for Stanley's FBI file because, um, he had been involved with, um, the YCL, the Young Communist League, while they were at Syracuse. Shirley was never really involved. Um, she was basically uninterested in politics for her entire life. But uh, I knew that Stanley had been involved, and so I, I 
requested his FBI file because, because I was hoping to fill in some gaps about his activities during those college years. And what I found actually was uh, astounding. Uh, there was nothing about his college years, but what I found was um, documentation of an investigation the FBI had undertaken of him and, um, you know, as a, as a side note, also of Shirley, from around 1948 until the early 50s. Uh, you know, just obviously just at the time of the beginning of the Red Scare in America. And what triggered this investigation, according to the FBI file, and I still am, am not 100% certain um, whether this story is the truth or it's some kind of cover-up, but um, according to the FBI file, the investigation was triggered because uh, one of the cartons of books fell off this moving truck and the mover happened to notice that it was filled with communist material and reported it to the local FBI office. Um, and in fact, part of the reason the FBI became interested in Stanley as a target was because the neighbors reported that he had so many books. Um, there's so many books in the house that the FBI thought that it might be a storehouse of communist material. <laughs> <laughs> of course it wasn't. It was <laughs> simply... Um, simply the library of two incredibly well-read and intellectually curious people. Yeah, but so, like, basically throughout their lives, they had problems with the neighbors. Uh, so and that's did. a, like, constant <laughs> theme. Um, and that leads, obviously, Shirley to write her famous story, The Lottery. So tell us about how that story came about. Right. Um, yeah, problems with the neighbors. Um, I, I, I think it's so, so so ironic to learn that the author of The Lottery, in fact, was spied on by her neighbors who, you know, reported her activities to the FBI, um, which she may or may not have been aware of at the time. But, uh, yeah, backing up the lottery, um, you know, she told a lot of stories about the origin of the lottery. And um, the, basically, the, it boils down to um, she was out shopping for groceries one morning with um, one of her young children. It was about, um, I think, two or two and a half at the time. And um, she would say that on her way back home, she had the idea for the story. And it was maybe the walk up the hill to their house. They lived up a very steep hill at the time that put an edge to it. And um, when, as soon as they got home, she um, put the baby in the playpen and put away her groceries and immediately sat down to write this story. And she was finished before her older son came home from kindergarten for lunch. So it's just amazing to think that, um, you know, this story that um, has become such a staple of American culture was written by its author in just a few hours. Right. And so you mentioned that, you know, that it's become this staple of American culture. Talk a little bit about what the response was to the story when it was published. Yeah, I mean, people definitely didn't assume at once that it was going to be this, uh, become the kind of classic that it became. Um, as Shirley's editor at The New Yorker called it, a classic in some category. <laughs> and, and that pretty much sums it up. People were not sure at all what to make of the lottery. Uh, it, it, the New Yorker said at the time that it generated more letters than the magazine had ever before received for a work of fiction. And, um, Jackson loved to talk about these letters, um, 
in a lecture that she often gave about the writing of the lottery. And she, you know, she emphasized how vicious they were, that she got all this hate mail. People called her names and they canceled their subscriptions. And, you know, she's, she, she wasn't exaggerating about these letters. Um, she received hundreds of them and um, saved them in a big scrapbook that um, anyone can go see in her archive at the Library of Congress. But what I found when I went through them was that um, they weren't as angry as she made them out to be. Um, mostly, they were confused. Um, people were really and truly disturbed by the lottery and, you know, so distressed that they felt um, called upon to write into the magazine for an answer to this burning question they felt of what on earth does this story mean? Yeah, I mean, this this quote really jumped out at me. She says, if the letter writers could be considered to give any accurate cross-section of the reading public, I would stop writing now. <laughs> yeah. And, and she didn't even know about the internet. <laughs> Indeed. You know, this, this is kind of an early version of the comments section, it seems <laughs> like. <laughs> uh, you know, totally unmoderated and unfiltered. Yeah. And it never really occurred to me before how her neighbors must have felt reading the lottery, but they were not amused. They were not amused. You know, it's funny. Um, I'm not sure how many of her neighbors actually read the lottery. I, I interviewed um, one person, um, the shopkeeper, uh, whose um, store, a grocery store called Powers Market, is a landmark in the village of North Bennington. Um, the market was run by his father, um, and he worked in it as a young man around the time that Jackson wrote the lottery. And so I interviewed him a few years ago, and he was uh, very elderly. He's since passed away. And he swore to me that he had never read the story, <laughs> you know, the most famous story ever to be written in his hometown, and he insisted that he had never read it. And, you know, I think that was um, the the reaction of many of the townspeople was that, um, you know, this was something that belonged to the to the realm of the New Yorker and wasn't really a, a part of of their culture, just like Shirley Jackson, despite living in the town for, you know, almost 20 years, would never really become um, accepted among the villagers. She and Stanley were always treated as outsiders. And, you know, there I don't think there was, this wasn't necessarily personal. Um, any newcomer would have been treated the same way. Um, Bernard Malamut, you know, another Jew who, um, was a professor at Bennington College and lived in town, told a story of um, once referring to a, a, somebody he knew in the town as a local and was sternly rebuked because it turned out that this man, who was apparently an octogenarian at the time, um, had been born somewhere else and had moved to North Bennington as a child. Uh, so uh, he couldn't really be considered a local. So, you know, you can imagine how Shirley and Stanley and then, of course, also the Malamuts must have felt. Um, you know, I, I have the sense that um, it, it truly was very difficult to integrate oneself in a community like this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so the lottery gets published and it's this big sensation, but that actually starts causing problems in Shirley and Stanley's marriage. So tell us about that. Right. Uh, you know, this made me feel actually very sorry for Stanley. Um, he spent the a lot most of the 1940s. Um, he spent working on a gigantic tome of literary criticism, 
It was called the Arm Vision, and it aimed to um, look at, I think, 12 different representative critics and their approaches, and eventually synthesize them onto the perfect critic. So basically, it was a, um, a criticism of criticism. And um, Stanley, um, you know, was very ambitious um, for this book and really thought that it was going to launch his career as a great literary critic. And um, he delayed and had trouble finishing it um, because of his teaching, um, which he was sort of unprepared for. And so the, the book, which I think was originally supposed to come out in 1945, ended up coming out just a couple weeks before the lottery in, 19, in the summer of 1948. And unfortunately, um, as you know, I don't have to tell you or your listeners who have never heard of this book, um, <laughs> it did not cause the kind of sensation that Stanley had been hoping for. And in fact, it, it, it got some rather negative reviews. And part of the problem with this book, looking at it now, it's impossible to imagine how it could have gotten anything other than negative reviews, because um, Stanley was so harsh on all these critics, um, who were necessarily going to be the people called upon to review this book. Um, and his editor actually foresaw this problem um, when he was uh, trying to get blurbs for it, um, and was turned down by many of the people he asked, because... Um, Stanley had insulted them at one point or another um, in print, you know, if not actually in this book itself, which did happen on a few occasions, then, um, you know, in some review that he had written. So um, he had already made himself a number of enemies by the time the book came out. And he was, um, he was crushed by its, its poor reception. And, um, and also by the fact that it didn't sell very many copies. It was a time when he and Shirley dearly needed the money. Um, now, you know, fortunately, the lottery came along and cemented Shirley's reputation. And from that point on, her fees for stories, um, you know, increased dramatically to the extent that within a few years, she was going to be the family's breadwinner. Again, an extremely unusual role for a woman of her period. Um, but, uh, it's it's kind of sad to see that um you know as her trajectory um you know was on the upswing his started heading down at that point and you know he he didn't actually publish another book for more than a decade he was so demoralized by this experience hmm. i mean one thing that really struck me reading this was how often you compare the work of shirley jackson to betty friedan's the feminine mystique about a decade later could you talk about why you felt it was so important to emphasize those connections? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that um, Shirley Jackson was a feminist, which is, a, you know, a question that I often get, um, because, you know, it simply wasn't a word that she would have used or, you know, that most people would have used in with, with anything like the meaning that we give to it now. Um, but what she was concerned to do in her work was to tell the stories of women. And looking at her body of work, what's what's extremely striking is that virtually all of it is focused around women. Um, you can literally count on one hand the number of male protagonists of her stories. And um, 
you know, I think this is this is part of the reason that she didn't win the kind of acceptance that she deserved in her time. Um, but it's also what makes her her writing feel so um, so prescient. Is that um, you know a good decade before Friedan would come out with the feminine mystique, Jackson was already writing the story that she was going to tell about the um, the dissatisfaction of the housewife, um, you know, who feels this strange stirring of discontent within herself and um, and doesn't have the ability to to give it a name um but this you know this tension that underlies her work is is the tension that um you know the women of her time felt in um it's struggling to to meet the standards to be the perfect housewife and yet feeling that there is um obviously that there is uh, something else something else out there that they were destined to do Right. And so she wrote a lot about women and she also wrote a lot about houses, which is understandable if you're a housewife. Could you just talk about her connection to houses and how houses show up in her work? Yeah, she was always, um, you know, they were always a major preoccupation of hers. Um, you know, you could even say that it was kind of in her blood because she came from a family of architects. Um, her great great grandfather was one of the first architects in San Francisco before the earthquake, which destroyed, unfortunately, a lot of his creations. And then some of his descendants also became architects. And houses were just a major interest of hers throughout her life. She collected pictures of them and postcards. Um, and her work always includes really careful descriptions of the rooms um, where important scenes take place. And then, um, toward, you know, towards the in her later career, her three last completed novels, um, The Sundial, The Haunting of Hill House, and We Have Always Lived in the Castle, each of these works um, revolves around a house that becomes almost a kind of character in the novel itself. Well, right. I mean, The Haunting of Hill House, I think, is probably her best-known work after The Lottery. Mm -hmm. um, and could you talk about how did that story exactly come about? Um. It's interesting. Um, I think she had in her mind that she wanted to write um, a ghost story, uh, that not a traditional ghost story, um, but that she was interested in the notion of um, of psychical investigation and research, and the idea of whether it could be proved um, whether ghosts were real or not. She always expressed skepticism about it, um, but um, you know whether she whether she truly believed in ghosts or not, I think, is difficult to say. But it was important for the novel that um, the ghosts be that the ghosts exist primarily on a psychological level. She never gives it away in the novel um, whether the supernatural manifestations are real or are the um, are the projections of the psyche of um, Eleanor, the main character. Um, who it becomes clear throughout the novel that um, she is quite um, quite unstable. Um, but the premise of the novel is that um, there's this there's a psychical researcher named Dr. Montague who decides to undertake an investigation of Hill House around which all kinds of legends have sprung up, and um, so he invites a group of uh, of people who have some kind of 
psychic incident in their background to join him in this investigation, and only a few of them respond, and um, those become the characters who we follow through the novel as they um, they themselves are re- report on what they observe um, taking place in the house and puzzle over whether um, whether it's truly supernatural or not. Right, and I think she herself was having sort of psychological disturbances, right? I mean, the the, the origin of the story, right, was that she was um, t- she took the train into New York City. And she saw this abandoned tenement and was so disturbed by it that she like, couldn't get it out of her mind and fled the city and things like that. Yeah, it's a strange story. Um, she describes, as you say, taking a, a train to New York and just catching a glimpse out of the corner of her eye of a, a burned out apartment building. And she finds something deeply evil about the building and it, it it shakes her up in kind of a profound way so that um, when she returns to Vermont, she becomes kind of obsessed with the idea of writing a novel about a haunted house and um, kind of goes around searching for one. In fact, um, one of her children told me about going on long drives with her throughout the countryside where they would, uh, they would look for abandoned houses. Um, and in fact, there were a lot of potential houses that might have served as the model for the house in Hill House. There's a story that um, one of the buildings on the Bennington College campus uh, was called Jennings Hall was meant to be the model. I can't tell you how many people have told me with great authority that, Mm -hmm. oh yes, Jennings Hall is the model for Hill House. And there's no evidence for this whatsoever. (laughs) Um, There's nothing about it in her files. In fact, um, she would say that um, she didn't like the in New England houses that um, you know are all kind of square angles, and no ghost would would dream of haunting them. <laughs> um, she actually um, looked towards her childhood and asked her mother for some pictures of houses that her um, her ancestors had created. She liked um, what she called these big old California gingerbread houses, you know, old Victorians with like lots of turrets and gables and all kinds of odd angles. And she was really interested in the Winchester Mystery House, uh, which you might have heard of out in California, which is not far from Burlingame, where she grew up. Um, it was the house belonging to the widow of uh, the man who created the Winchester Rifle Company. And the story goes that was that she was, was haunted by the guilt of thinking of all the people who had been killed by these guns. I guess, you know, it was an early, she was an early proponent of gun control. <laughs> um, and the story goes that she had this house built. Um, she consulted a psychic or something like that who told her that the only way to rid herself of this, this haunting was to build a house that would be really confusing to all the ghosts and um, a house that would be constantly in flux. So apparently she hired a whole bunch of carpenters and all kinds of workers to just work on the house indefinitely for, for decades until she died. And apparently it's a big tourist attraction today. I, ha- I haven't been to it, but um, you can go on tours of this house, and indeed it's apparently full of um, all kinds of odd angles and you know super narrow hallways and staircases that don't go anywhere. And um, 
it, it definitely is one of the houses that she thought about uh, during the time that she was writing Hill House. She, um, she wrote to her mother and asked for information about the Winchester house. Um, but um, I had kind of a, a funny experience when I was spending time uh, in Bennington, Vermont, a couple summers ago um, around a mansion just a few miles away from where Jackson lived called the Everett Mansion which it turns out has some strange stories um, around it, too, that are kind of reminiscent of the stories that Jackson incorporated at the Hill House about the family that built the house. Um, and some physical similarities um, convinced me that that house may also have been among her models. And in fact, there was a picture of it in her files. I'm sorry, did you say you had a strange experience there? I, I did have kind of a strange experience there, um, where um, I, I I went for a walk around the grounds. Um, it's now it's now part of Southern Vermont College, uh, and without knowing it was there, I, I went out for a walk one afternoon, and um, there was a, a big field with a hill, and the the hill was covered with really really tall grass. And as I was walking through the grass, I had um, kind of a flashback to a scene in Hill House where she describes the grass um, waving in the breeze as if an animal of some kind is walking through it. And this this scene just flashed into my mind, and um, there are woods beyond it. And um, I, you know, I just had this feeling that I did not want to proceed any farther in that direction. And I turned around and went down a different path, and I was just stunned when I came out of this path into a clearing, and I saw the back of this house, which I recognized from the picture that I had seen of it in Jackson's files. Um, it was it truly felt as if I had somehow been there before. And so I, I realized that, um, you know, what had frightened me out there in the grass, you know, wasn't some kind of supernatural experience but you know if in fact this was part of um what jackson modeled uh the house and grounds in the novel on then perhaps i recognized it simply from having read the novel so many times and you know kind of incorporated it into my own um you know imagination and you know personal mythology huh wow that's really interesting I mean, I, I read um, The Haunting of Hill House. I was just out of college when I read it. And the scene that has always stuck with me the most is this scene where Eleanor is in bed at night and she's scared of being haunted. And she's holding hands with someone she believes is her friend right. for comfort. And then when they turn the lights on, she sees that there's no one in the bed with her. Right. And that's always just stuck in my mind so much. But it never really, I, obviously, I didn't know anything about her marriage. But I thought that you know, knowing that it's just such a powerful metaphor for her marriage, if you choose to read it that way, this idea of you think that there's someone in bed with you, comforting you, and then when you turn on the lights, you find out that you're actually, you've been alone this whole time. Exactly. And she says, um, she says, God, God, whose hand was I holding? Um, and I feel like that that is also, I mean, part of these novels about houses, I feel, especially with Hill House, you know, that are novels about marriage. In a way, because, you know, what is a, a more obvious symbol for, for marriage than a house? Um, and in Hill House also, the house is a, is 
a home that's been built by a, a father and a husband for his family where things, of course, end up going terribly wrong for them there. And that's the tragedy of that house. Um, but yeah, that scene where she suddenly is, um, you know, she's convinced that she's holding someone's hand. She feels that she's holding someone's hand. And then it turns out to be not what she thinks it is. Um, you know, I think probably all of us have, um, a few, uh, they have had the experience of, um, you know, something happens that makes us think that our, our partner isn't quite the person we think they are, or, you know, shows a, a side that we haven't seen before. Um, and, you know, reminds us that other people are always basically unknowable in any, you know, <laughs> in, in so many important ways. Right, well, so you mentioned that you thought that Jackson had kind of been marginalized critically because she wrote so much about women and about domestic matters and things. Kind of what's been the the trajectory of her critical appraisal, um, you know, over the past few decades? Yeah, well, at the time, critics definitely were really confused by her in general. Um, some of them admired, you know, what, what we could call her, her serious novels, but disparaged um, her works about her household, you know, the, the comic memoirs. And others, you know, were just puzzled that the same person could write in these two very different genres. Um, some even criticized her for wasting her time writing about her family, writing these comic works. Um, and it, needless to say, that they were um, mostly male critics at the time. And um, so, you know, I, I think because she didn't follow um, the traditional model of what a writer is supposed to be, especially because, you know, she wasn't writing the quote-unquote great American novel as uh, we've been taught to understand it, that uh, she was marginalized during her life um, as well as afterwards by, um, you know, critics who essentially wrote her out of the canon um, because her works didn't fit into a recognizable mold. And it's it's really only in, over the past um, a decade or so, I would say, that um, serious and important um, academic criticism is being done of Jackson's work. Um, and now, of course, all her novels are finally back in print, um, as well as her, um, her comic memoirs. And she's been, uh, uh, deservedly praised for, for writing in both forms. It was interesting for me to read that she'd had this sort of lull in her, um, uh, you know, level of awareness. Cause I mean, I hang out with so many horror writers and among horror writers, uh, she's always, you know, been held in very high esteem. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Neil Gaiman and Stephen King in the book. There's the Shirley Jackson Award. Uh, it just seems like that maybe the horror community has sort of like uh, been appreciating her and sort of kept her memory alive in a way. Right. And I think Stephen King especially has always been really active on her behalf and a big Shirley Jackson supporter. Um, of course, you know, he has, I think, a whole chapter in his book, Dance Macabre, where he... Um, talks about Hill House and especially it's it's beautiful beautiful first paragraph as um as kind of a paradigm for what fiction writing should be um and i believe at one point he was responsible for bringing some of jackson's work back into print i mean could you say maybe a little bit more about why did you decide to call the book shirley jackson a haunted life 
Right. Um, so, yeah, it's called um, Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life. A rather, and, a rather. Yeah. Life. <laughs> um, and the quote actually comes from Roger Strauss, who was uh, Shirley Jackson's first publisher, the publisher of uh, the publishing house that was then called Farrar Strauss. Now, of course, Farrar Strauss and Giroux. Um, and, you know, I struggled over whether to call the book this because um, Jackson actually really didn't like Roger Strauss very much. And um, I, I think would have been kind of chagrined to know that um, he got to have this, uh, you know, this important say over her, her, um, her work. But um, it comes from an interview he gave where he described her as a rather haunted woman. And it, it struck me that um, this just was such an apt way to describe her because, you know, of course, she was haunted. She had all these, um, all these personal demons, you know, her, her anxiety, uh, her mental instability. You know, we, we haven't really talked about this, but towards the end of her life, she was um, actually agoraphobic and uh, for some time couldn't even leave her house. Um, and, of course, you know, the demons that, run rampant all over her work. Um, so, of course, you know, she was haunted. But at the same time, you know, my book does try to argue against the perception of Jackson as, you know, a, a just a horror writer um, and to show that um, she had so many so many facets as, as a writer and as a, as a person and, you know, that, that her work was... Um, much much more diverse um and also kind of much more to the point uh, and you know realistic about the situation for women than it's generally given credit for being um so in calling it a rather haunted life i kind of wanted to suggest that um yes she was haunted but you know she wasn't um extremely haunted <laughs> really rather haunted <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, she died young, you say, right? Age 48. Um, That's right. Um, that does seem young, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she died suddenly um, of a heart attack. She was um, she was very overweight and, um, you know, drank and smoked heavily. Also um, used some prescription drugs and certainly all these habits um, contributed to her, to her tragic early death. Um, as I said, she was agoraphobic towards the end of her life. But, um, which, which many people know, but what's lesser known is that, um, in the last six months or so, she was, had made almost a complete recovery. And in fact, the spring before she died, she went on a big lecture tour of a number of, uh, colleges and universities where she gave readings from the two novels that she was working on at the time that she died. One of which was published as, um, Come Along With Me as an unfinished novel. Um, a comic novel about a woman who um, runs away from home and uh, embarks on a new life. Um, and then she was also writing at the same time a fantasy novel for children, um, kind of modeled on the Wizard of Oz books, which were a great favorite of hers. Um, so when she died, um, you know, she was arrested right in the middle of these these two projects. Um, so, you know, it's sad and frustrating to think of how much great work there might have been to come. Right, especially, you've said, because her books were just getting better and better as she was going. Yeah, I really do feel that that she died at, at the peak of her 
creative powers. Um, you know, you've said, and I agree with you that, that Hill House is your, your favorite of her novels. Um, but many critics, um, think that we have always lived in the castle is her best work. Um, and, you know, it's definitely a very close second <laughs> for me as her works go. Um, it's a, you know, a very spare, tight, just about perfect novel. Um, and, you know, the work of a writer who had really learned how to uh, kind of strip down and, and polish her sentences to perfection. It was one thing that her editor at the time, who was um, the legendary editor, Pascal Cavici at Viking, uh, one of the things that he most admired about her as a writer and enjoyed in working with her was that she was such a great editor of her own work. I mean, there's actually, there's actually a, a We Have Always Lived in the Castle film adaptation coming out. Are you uh, excited about that? Yeah, I, I've heard about that. I wish I had some inside knowledge to share with you. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I've just been following along in the news like everybody else. But I'm certainly very intrigued to see how that's going to come out. I wanted to ask you about one of these blurbs that says uh, that this book is a perfect marriage of biographer and subject. Do you think that you're the perfect person to write this book? <laughs> um, um, you know, I hesitate to say anything quite so um, so grandiose, but um, you know, I definitely felt like um, I had a very deep sympathy with Shirley Jackson, and you know, felt that way from the beginning of the project. Um, you know that, um, and that that was important to me in writing this book. You know, you often hear about biographers who fall out of love with their subjects or, you know, become become disenchanted and kind of disgruntled with them. And it, it seems like that, that can produce, um, you know, a very difficult writing experience, to say the least. And um, I'm really happy and grateful that I didn't have that experience of falling out of love. I, you know, I remained, for all, the whole six years, I remained as absorbed in Shirley Jackson's life you know, as, as ever. And, um, you know, it just was, um, I, I found her to be an, an incredibly fascinating and a congenial subject. Right. I mean, it seems like in a lot of ways that you inhabit the same world. She did. I mean, you mentioned that you're a mother, you're a writer, you live in the New York area, you, you publish in some of the same magazines that she and Stanley were publishing in. I mean, do you feel that you're sort of in that same world that she was in? I mean, her world, in some ways, yes, of course. And, you know, as, as a mother who's a professional writer, I do definitely experience, um, some of, some struggles that are similar to hers. I mean, on the other hand, though, um, writing this book really did give me an appreciation for how much things have changed. I'd say that one thing that has not changed for the better is the financial situation for writers. And one thing that just blew my mind was to see the kinds of fees that Jackson got for pieces in those days. Um, you know, they, they were fees that one would not be disappointed to get today. That, and that's, you know, not adjusted for inflation. You know, um, in, in the fifties or sixties, early sixties, she's getting, you know, 2000 or $2,200 a pop for a magazine story. And in those days, you could buy a small car with that amount of money. So, and she did. Uh, and she did. <laughs> she loved to buy. She had a, a small collection of uh, Morris Miners, the little British uh, sports cars. And, um, you know, the idea, of course, that you, you could 
buy a car with your fee from a magazine piece these days is um is uh quite foreign <laughs> i would say to the vast majority of writers of you know except excepting perhaps those who who are working at the absolute highest echelon um you know so while i you know i looked on on this aspect of the business with no small degree of nostalgia or i guess false nostalgia since took place long before I was born, um, I would say that, you know, obviously what has changed for the better is the roles that um, men and women are expected to play in, in marriage and in child rearing. Um, you know, Stanley Hyman, apparently, even for his age, was uh, a, a strikingly uninvolved parent. And uh, I, I'm happy to say that uh, my, my own situation with my partners is quite different from that. Yeah, he knows how, how to light the stove without your help. I would say that um, he is more than capable of making his own coffee, <laughs> <laughs> which Stanley famously was apparently never able to do. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that really struck me is that so many of the letters that you quote in this book are letters where Shirley pours her heart out and then she never sent the letter. So yeah. I don't know how many people besides you actually looked at these letters. Maybe nobody. I don't know. But, um, you know, it seems like you know her in a very intimate way that maybe no one else ever did. Well, you know, there is something, you know, very um, intimate about reading someone's personal papers like this. And I, I guess it's what makes so many people uncomfortable with with the very idea of the biographer, you know, who's often called um, a voyeur or, you know, the, uh, a pathographer who searches for his subject's weaknesses and all that. Um, you know, there's no doubt that there is something kind of invasive about um about going through a person's private papers you know the letters the the diaries and all that stuff um but um you know i guess you justify it by saying that you are really trying to understand what it was like to to be this person you know i i i spent six years you know really trying to imagine myself inside shirley jackson's head um and you know it does it does feel like a, an incredibly intimate relationship. You know, of course, it's it's completely one-sided. It's the the definition of the the non-reciprocated love, I suppose. Um, but at the same time, it's also it's it, it's very fulfilling in its own way. Yeah, yeah. I also wanted to mention on Twitter uh, today. I saw that you had um, <laughs> there was this uh, correction that was posted in the exactly the, the reports of my death were greatly exaggerated. <laughs> Yeah, so, so so basically they, they accidentally printed that you had died at the age of 48 rather than Shirley Jackson had died at the age of 48. Well, I'm relieved that I didn't actually read the version of the review that um, contained that bit of information. or It probably would have been quite, um, quite disconcerting. Um, but somebody tweeted back to me that this sounded like the setup for a Shirley Jackson story, yeah, now, yeah. <laughs> which of course, of course it does. It couldn't be more appropriate. Yeah, I was going to say, I just want to reassure all our listeners that you are, in fact, alive. We are not doing this by seance or something. We are not. I'm not speaking to you from beyond the grave, but from my, my home in Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. Uh, so do you have any other projects you want to mention or any final words or anything? Um, you know, I, I, as I said, I've spent so much time sort of trying to get into Shirley Jackson's head that I, I've been loath to jump right into another project right now. Um, I'm still devoted to to Jackson and to getting the word out about this book and about her work. Well, so how are you planning to get the word out about it? 
Uh, well, you know, I've got a small book tour going on where I'll be in Boston tomorrow, actually, and uh, then in uh, Washington and Baltimore the following week, and then in California, uh, and then in New England. And so if uh, anybody's interested, all the information is on my Facebook page and also my website at ruthfranklin.net. All right, great. Yeah, and I really just strongly recommend people check out this biography. It's it's a long book, lots and lots of research, but it's a page turner. I just blew right through it. And just if you're interested in writing and, you know, these, you know, the lottery and haunting of Hill House, I mean, it's just so much fascinating information in it. And uh, yeah, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So uh, Ruth Franklin, thank you so much. The book again, is called Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life. Remember to get that rather in there. <laughs> thank you very much. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Ruth Franklin for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Penguin Random House for sponsoring today's show. Check out the new book Spaceman, an astronaut's unlikely journey to unlock the secrets of the universe over at MikeMassimino.com. Special thanks as well to Jesse Colton, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to give a special thank you to Aaron Brumley, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.